organization, he begins to realize there is a lot of false propaganda going on. The organization is not as noble and honorable as it makes itself out to be. And the organization is concerned about this, and so they erase his memory. Now, they, don't, they can't erase the entire memory. They've tried this with other people, and they realize that if you erase every, the entire memory, people become vegetables and they're useless. So they'll leave a little bit of the memory, but most of the rest of the memory gets erased. And this happens to this particular character a couple of times. And each time he comes back and sort of gets in touch with the situation and begins to again realize that there are dangers in the, in the organization, things he can't trust. And so they erase his memory again. But he remembers which part of his memory they don't erase. And so he buries a memory there. That there's a letter that he's written to himself that after the operation is over he should go to this one rock formation and look inside the rock formation and there will be a letter. And the letter warns him of, these are the people you have to watch out for, these are the people you can trust, these are the people you can't trust. These are the dangers. And so as a thought experiment, I thought it would be interesting tonight to, talk, to ask the question, suppose the Buddha was writing that letter to you. What would he put in the letter? Things you shouldn't forget, especially when you're surrounded by organizations that are giving you all kinds of propaganda. What would he say about, where are the, where are the dangers? that you have to watch out for. And the Buddhist picture of dangers comes down to three. There are dangers outside, there are dangers inside. And then there's dangers simply for the fact that you live in a universe where things, your experience is put together by your actions. So you have to watch out for those three levels of danger. So he doesn't focus on saying it's just dangers outside. We have the politicians and the media to tell us you know, it's the Russians or it's the Mexicans or whatever you have to watch out for. Um, he doesn't say the dangers are solely inside. There's a lot of modern dharma that says, you know, if you only learned how to get in touch with your interconnected nature with all of reality, everything would be fine. Learn how to trust the reality out there and everything will be okay. That's teaching heedlessness. He's saying the dangers inside and out. The dangers outside, of course, are the unskillful actions of other people. The dangers inside are your own unskillful actions. And the ultimate level of danger is the dangers that come even from your skillful actions. So those are the three things that you want to look at. And so when he talks about protection from danger, he deals with all three levels. Dangers from outside, from other people, are not so much what they do to you, but what they can get you to do. In other words, yeah, they can kill you, but they can kill you only one lifetime. But they can get you to change your views and change your actions, which would have an effect beyond this lifetime. It's interesting that when the Buddha says that you harm others, you harm yourself by breaking the precepts, you harm others when you get them to break the precepts. It's an interesting thought. He also says that, that loss in terms of your wealth, loss in terms of your health, loss in terms of your relatives, is not nearly as serious as loss in terms of your own virtue and your own, and your own right view. So these are the things inside you've got to protect, your virtue and your right view. So your own internal dangers, of course, are the things that you do under the influence of greed, aversion, and delusion. 
And then there's the simple fact that you live in a fabricated universe, a fabricated level of experience, where everything that gets put together, no matter how well put together it is, is going to fall apart. So it offers a third level of, of protection, which is the deathless, nirvana. And so it's important to keep that in mind. A couple, of year, a couple of months back, I was asked to write an article for Lions where they had a little, you know, they, when they do these things, they line up teachers and they have all different kinds of answers to one question. And the question was, what is the real serious purpose of meditation? And they sent the letter out and saying, we're, we're sick and tired of hearing people saying meditation is good for your blood pressure, meditation is good for your, your creativity in your office, you're, you're meeting your, your quarterly goals. You know, what is meditation really about? And so as they wrote the letter to the different teachers, they say they suggested a few things that you know you might say, you know, having infinite compassion, you know, greater wisdom, insight, or dare we say nirvana. So that's what I wrote about. <laughs> it's, people tend to forget that that is an option. <laughs> so Buddhism talks about protection on these three levels. And it does and it does it when it talks about the teaching on refuge. You know the classical teaching, we take the refuge and the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And it's good to reflect on what, what does that mean? And you look at the teachings and basically there are three levels of each of these. There's the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha on the external level. In other words, they are people or things outside that you look to for good examples as to what good behavior would be, how to find true happiness. And we've got the Buddha the, who lived 2,600 years ago the dharma that he taught, the sangha that he established. That's a refuge on the external level. The second level is when you internalize the qualities of those, those people and those things, those teachings. In other words, the Buddha was a person of wisdom, compassion, purity. You try to develop those three qualities in yourself. That way you have an internal refuge. When the Buddha talks about taking the dharma as your refuge, he, he says, this is when you practice the establishing of mindfulness. We'll talk a little bit later about what that implies. And the Sangha, of course, are those people who followed the Buddha, who practiced the Dharma in accordance with the Dharma. In other words, not in accordance with their own preferences, not in accordance with their likes or dislikes. Whatever the Dharma required, that's what they practiced. And those are the people that we take as good examples. What John Munn called the customs of the noble ones. You're trying to make your life more and more like the noble ones did, and they follow the customs that go all the way back to the Buddha. Um, so those are the those are the refuges on the external level, um, but they can be internalized. And when you fully internalize them, then they lead you to the third level of safety, which is the ultimate safety, which is the safety of the deathless. So it's good to think about you know what kind of example they have, and how you go about internalizing that example. Um, in terms of the Buddha, the three traditional qualities of wisdom, compassion, purity. And there are interesting teachings in the canon where he talks about how you get started on becoming wise, how you get started on becoming compassionate, how you get started on becoming pure. And they're very basic. In fact, they're so basic people tend to look over them, but they're really important. In terms of wisdom, the Buddha said that the beginning of wisdom is when you ask someone that you trust, what, when I do it, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? But when I do it, it will lead to my long-term harm and suffering. Now the wisdom in those questions comes into several things. One is realizing happiness is going to have to depend on your actions. Suffering will depend on your actions. So you have to look at what you're doing 
as the important thing, as the important issue. Secondly, there is such a thing as long-term happiness. Sometimes you hear the Buddha says, well, you know, happiness is constant, it comes and goes like waves on the waves on the shore. And so you just learn how to accept what's going to come when it comes and not get upset when it doesn't come. But the Buddha said, no, there really is such a thing as long-term happiness. Be, be, being generous, being virtuous, meditating, this gives you happiness that lasts a long time. It will depend on your actions. And finally, of course, there's the wisdom of realizing that long-term is better than short-term. Really basic. In fact, it's so basic, there's a, there's a Dhammapada verse where the Buddha says, you know, if you see that there is a greater happiness that comes from abandoning a lesser happiness, the wise person will abandon the lesser happiness for the sake of the greater happiness. There was a British translator who translated that, translated the Dhammapada, and his footnote for that verse is, this could not possibly mean the meaning of this passage. It is so basic. We don't need a Buddha to tell us this. But I think we do. <laughs> we want to play chess and keep all our pieces, you know, and win. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So that's the beginning of wisdom. Now notice, and this will also apply to all the, the, the teachings that lie at the basis of compassion and purity. The Buddha is basically saying, you want to search for happiness. There's nothing wrong with the desire to be happy. It's simply that you should learn how to do it in a heedful and wise way. And in doing it that way, it's not just hedonistic. You're not just going for the pleasures. You're going to be develop some noble character, character traits. So the first one is wisdom. The second one is compassion. And the beginning of compassion is when you realize that if your happiness depends on other people's suffering, they're not going to stand for it. So it cannot possibly be long-term. This comes in a story, one of my favorite stories in the canon. Um, King Basanadi is up in the palace with, his, with one of his favorite queens, and they're alone in a room together. And in a tender moment, he turns to her and says, Is there anyone you love more than yourself? You know what he's thinking. <laughs> yes, Your Majesty, I love you more than myself. Well, no. <laughs> queen Malika, that was the queen. She's no fool. And besides, this is not a Hollywood movie. This is the polycanon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And she says, no, there's nobody I love more than myself, and what about you? And he has to admit, mm, there's nobody I love more than myself. So that's the end of that scene. <laughs> so the king goes down to see the Buddha, reports the conversation. And the Buddha says, you know, she's right. You could search the whole world over and not find anyone that you love more than yourself. And at the same time, everybody else out there loves themselves just as fiercely. His conclusion, though, is not that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. His conclusion is that you should never harm anyone or cause them to create harm. In other words, if you want to be happy, your happiness has to depend on not harming others. This is the beginning of compassion. You have to take other people's happiness into consideration. So again, you're looking for happiness, but you're learning how to do it in a wise way. Finally, with purity, there's a teaching that he gives to Rahula. Rahula is seven, seven years old, and the Buddha comes to see him one day, and Rahula sets out some water for him to wash his feet. And the Buddha takes the dipper, washes his feet, and you got the impression that Rahula probably told a lie that day, because the first thing the Buddha talks about is lying. He says, you see how little water there is there in this dipper? Yes. 
That's how little goodness there is in a person who tells a deliberate lie and is not ashamed. And then takes the water and throws it away. See how that water is thrown away? Yes. That's what happens to the goodness of a person who tells a deliberate lie and is not ashamed. It gets thrown away. See, so you see how empty this is? Yes, 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 I get the point. <laughs> so he stresses one, truthfulness is the beginning of the path. You've got to be truthful to yourself, truthful to others. And then he says, you look at your actions as you would look in a mirror. Before you act, ask yourself, do you anticipate any harm from this action, either to yourself or to others? If you anticipate harm, don't do it. And this we're talking not just about external actions, but also mental actions. If you don't anticipate harm, go ahead and do it. While you're doing it, if you notice that any unanticipated harm is coming up, you stop. Because not all mistakes are going to give their results in the, you know, in the next lifetime. You put your finger in the fire and it's not going to be the next lifetime that it burns. It burns now. So if you notice you're doing something that causes you harm, you stop. If you're not causing any harm, continue. When you're done, look at the long-term results and you realize, okay, there was some harm that I did. You go and talk it over to someone else on the path and resolve that you're not going to create, repeat that mistake. If you see that you didn't cause any harm, then you take joy in the fact that your practice is progressing and then you continue practicing further. This is very basic you know, learning from your mistakes. And the Buddhist, we, we talk many times about, well, learn from your mistakes. This is how you do it. One, you try to be truthful to what are you actually doing, what do you actually anticipate, what, what, the, what are the actual results. And you keep monitoring why you do it. You, know, you monitor the intention, you monitor the action, you monitor the results. And you learn from that. This is how you purify your actions. So these, these three qualities, again, you're looking for happiness, but you're trying to do it in a reliable way a heedful way, a wise way. And so these are the qualities of the Buddha. You look in his life, and it's, it's good to read through the text and look at cases where the Buddha was extremely wise, extremely compassionate, very pure in his actions, not harming anybody. Look at his compassion in particular. Um, you know, teaching the poorest people, going out. There was this one, a couple of cases where there was women in the cemeteries crying over their lost children. He went out and he taught them right there. There was an outcast. When the Buddha went right up to the outcast, and the outcast was thinking, you know, that the Buddha was probably going to, you know, push him out of the way, and so he tries to get out of the way. And the Buddha says, "No, I'm going to teach you." And he taught without asking money for his teachings, not even a suggested donation. <laughs> so think about that. <laughs> there was at one time when a Brahmin tried to offer him some payment for his teaching, and the Buddha says. Okay, it was, it, was a, it was some food. And the Buddha said, Okay, take that food and throw it away. And be careful where you throw it away, too. Don't throw it on any plants. If you throw out some water where there are no, or there are no animals. So he does, and it sizzles. And it's that, the Buddha was that pure. He would not take anything at all for his teachings. So these are, this is kind of the example that the Buddha set. And you think about that when you, as you go through your life. Think about the qualities or the practices or the questions he has you ask to develop wisdom, compassion, purity. It's all about trying to find happiness in a reliable way. There's nothing wrong with looking for happiness, but just do it wisely. And that becomes your protection. 
in terms of taking the Dharma as your refuge, this is where the Buddha basically talks about internalizing his, you know, the examples, right? internalizing the teachings. And he says you do that through the practice of establishing mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is not simply just being aware of what's coming and going. Remember, mindfulness is a faculty of your memory. It's defined as your ability to remember what was done and said a long time ago. In other words, you learn lessons and then you try to keep them in mind. This is how you protect yourself. If you learn something and you forget it, you're not protecting yourself. The protection is trying to learn all the good lessons you've learned from the past, either from other people or from your own actions. And you do that by establishing mindfulness. This is that second part of the question where, where does the, you know, we talked about what the Buddha would put in that letter. Well, what, where would you have you stash the letter as you write the letter to yourself? You stash it in your breath. You stash it in your awareness of the present moment. The breath is really good this way because we tend to forget, usually in moments of strong emotion. Strong anger comes in, strong fear comes in, strong greed, strong lust comes in, and everything you learned about the Buddhist teachings just goes out the window. But their breath is there. You breathe in, oops, and if you've been practicing mindfulness of the breath, learning to associate skillful qualities, or the development of skillful qualities with your breath, each time you breathe in, there it is, as a reminder. So you're trying to place your memory of what's right and what's wrong what's skillful and what's not skillful, in your body, in the present moment. So it's right there to remind you. And what would the Buddha have you remind you? Well, you look at his teachings on the various states of mind that can come up. Learn how to recognize a hindrance when it comes. Learn how to recognize something that's actually good for the mind when it comes. When hindrances come, our thought is usually not, oh, this is a hindrance. Lust comes. Is that your first thought? Oh, this is a hindrance. No. <laughs> Greed comes. Anger comes. You're not thinking, oh my gosh, this is a hindrance, I've got to stop. You just go with it. And so the first thing is to remember, this is a hindrance. Learn how to recognize it. And then remember, okay, in the past when I've been able to drop these things, what did I do? How did I act? What did I think? Then you're in a position where you can actually use the teachings to to put these things aside. Because when the Buddha is talking about mindfulness, again, it's not just simply a fact and accepting the fact that something unskillful has come up in the mind and watching it until it goes. He said you actually try to prevent unskillful things from arising, and if they do, you try to make them pass away. So you're not watching them come and go on their own. You're trying to stop the unskillful things from coming and make them pass away if they do come. Similarly with skillful things, you try to give rise to them, and once they've given rise to them, you try to stop them from passing away. You try to continue, keep them going. And this is your protection. Because it's your skillful qualities in the mind that are going to protect you from doing unskillful things outside. Now when you work on mindfulness, it develops in, this is, this is basically the teachings of mindfulness. These are these little letters that you write to yourself. To remind yourself, okay, I've learned these things in the past. Don't forget them when they're important. When you're strongly tempted not to follow them, and this is one of the reasons why the the precepts are so so clear clear cut. You know, don't kill. Not a lot of words, very simple. But it's easy to remember because it's short. 
You've seen, well, don't kill unless, well, unless there's this and unless there's that, unless there's this and unless there's that, you forget. And you can find all kinds of reasons for saying, oh yes, that is a, that's one of those exceptions. I can go, and get, go ahead and kill. Lewis says, no. No stealing, no illicit sex, no lying, no, no alcohol. I don't know if I told you when I was in France a couple years back. And this, this, this precept against drinking, is it only drinking in excess or is it drink, you know, all alcohol? So that all alcohol. Next day, second question. You have to understand French culture. <laughs> Friend offers you a glass of wine and you refuse a glass of wine, it's an insult. And so my answer was, well, you, I'm sure that even in France, if you tell your friend that your doctor says no, then the friend will understand. Now, the Buddha is traditionally considered as a doctor, so you don't have to tell your friend who your doctor is <laughs> or what disease he's treating. <laughs> Next day, another question. On the table. Camembert au point, French bread right out of the oven, a bottle of pomar, which I had never heard of before, but apparently is hot stuff, you know. Uh, I consult my doctor. Would he say Coke? Would he recommend Coke Light? <laughs> and I said the Buddha was not an American imperialist or an American capitalist. He'd recommend San Pellegrino. <laughs> so the precepts are there. For you to remember, staying with the breath, it's there for you to remember these things. You want to learn these lessons and to remember them so you can apply them, put them to use. This is why the practice of mindfulness is not just mindfulness, but it's also alertness and it's ardency. That gets forgotten a lot. When John Lee wrote a book on mindfulness, that, those were the three words he kept coming back to again and again and again. Mindful to keep things in mind. Alert to see what you're actually doing. It's not just a you know, willy-nilly awareness of what's happening in the present moment. What are you choosing to do? Is it skillful? Is it not? And then ardency is there, let's do it skillfully. And if, okay, if I've made a mistake, let's learn from the mistake so we don't repeat the mistake again. If you practice mindfulness in this way, that those messages that the mind sends to itself again and again and again will get you into concentration. You're focused on, this is a skillful place to take the mind. And that gives you strength, because there's a sense of well-being that comes from the concentration, so that you're not quite so tempted to just go with whatever comes your way, or go with whatever the mind wants to think up. Because again, it's, the problems are not so much outside, the problems are inside. It's not the case that Anger comes simply because someone outside does something really irritating. Sometimes you want to be angry. You're irritated, just there's an irritation in the mind, let's focus it on something so I can get really angry. And this is why they have hate radio. You don't know who to be angry about today, turn it on. Same with greed. This is why we have Amazon. What can I? What can I want today? You know? <laughs> we go check it out. 
And so you've got to look, okay, these are the things you've got to watch out for. These are the, the message you have to keep sending yourself. It's the problems are not, so, there are problems outside, there are dangers outside, but the real ones are what the people out there can get you to do. It's your actions that you're willing to act on. And you're not going to be susceptible for them unless you already have a lot of greed, aversion, and delusion, or enough greed, aversion, and delusion for them to take advantage of. So you've got to work, this is the work is inside. So this is how you internalize the Dharma. This is how you make yourself your own refuge by practicing mindfulness, which is not distinct from the practice of concentration. Tomorrow we'll be talking about concentration, and one of the points I want to make is that the teachings on mindfulness are basically like the recipe of how you do the meditation, how you do concentration. You're being focused on one topic in and of itself. Ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. That's the definition of right mindfulness. Well, it's also how you get the mind into concentration. You focus on one topic in and of itself. You're ardent to stick with it. You're alert to watch what you're doing. You remember to where you're trying to stay. And anything else that's related to the world outside, you put aside. So the instructions on mindfulness are the recipe. The, the descriptions of jhana are the restaurant review. This is how it's supposed to taste. You know? So they're not two separate practices. This is your this is your internalization of the Dharma, so that you become your own refuge. You've got that inner strength, that inner sense of well-being that you can depend on. So you're not quite so easily pushed around by fears and desires outside. You've got some a sense of well-being here because the reasons we do unskillful things is because we feel uncomfortable, ill at ease. We want a quick hit of pleasure somehow, and we go for the quick hit. This is, gives you some resistance against that. It's as if we're standing on the side of a road, and a car comes up and says, Jump in! And so you jump in, and without asking, Who are you? Where are we going? <laughs> I mean, if we lived like that, we would die, but that's how our minds run, usually. A thought comes up, let's go. And why do you go? Because you're, you're standing on the side of the road and it's not very comfortable. The car looks more comfortable. So if you learn how to build yourself a house on the side of the road, they come up driving and say, let's go. You say, no, I've got a nice house. Mm -hmm. So this is how you build a refuge for yourself here in the present moment, by being developing right mindfulness to the point of getting the mind more and more under, its, under your control. And then it's based on that, then you develop wisdom in seeing and how the mind fabricates things and how there is, ultimately you get very, very sensitive to this until you realize, okay, there is, there's, it is possible not to fabricate. And that's when something much deeper than concentration opens up. And that's the ultimate refuge. Then there's the refuge of the, of the Sangha, which again, as I said, is based, the example they give for us is, okay, you follow the Dharma in accordance with the Dharma. You're not making it in accordance with your own desires. We look back on Buddhist history and it's so easy to see, okay, these, this is how the Chinese changed the Dharma, and this is how the Japanese changed the Dharma, and this is how the Thais changed the Dharma. We look at that and we say, well, when it comes to America, we, get, we have our right to make it American. But that's missing a lot of part that the people who really are admirable in China and Japan and Thailand are the people who are not trying to change the Dharma. They're trying to go back and find what was the original teaching. Follow that. 
and this is where we respect a John Munn, a John Cha, a John Lee. They went back to the source as best they could find it. There are similar people in Japan, similar people in China who went back to the source. That's the example we want to follow. Because the Dharma was, as, as we chant again, Swakato, Bhagavatamo, the Dharma was well taught, well taught. The Buddha did a good job, basically. <laughs> so we don't have to improve on it. What we have to do is, you know, there's that Zen saying that the great way is not hard for those with those you no know, preferences. And it doesn't mean you have no preferences at all. It means that whatever the great way requires, you'll do it. Whatever the path requires, you do it. Hope I don't mind you if I tell a story, but when I first came here years back, I remember we got to a road one time, and the question was, we're going out to Mount Hood, and the question, which road should we take? And someone said, well, I know I'm not supposed to have preferences, but I think we should go to the right now. <laughs> I said, no, 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 have that preference, please. You know? <laughs> and I think you've gotten better about that over the years, right, Mary? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who you are. <laughs> so when we see, well, this is what the path requires, we say, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. Because that's what the Buddha asked for, give it a good try, give it a serious try. When he was teaching the Galamas and saying that, you know, don't go by your teacher, don't go by the text, he's not saying just go by whatever you feel like. He says, because you also can't go by your feelings, you can't go by your own your own thinking things through. You have to test things. And to test things, you say, okay, let's test the Dharma as the Buddha taught it before we throw it away. And so this is one of the reasons why we appreciate the Sangha for having passed that down. So it gives us the, the Buddhist teaching so we can actually test. This is what the Buddha taught. Does it really work? So this is the example of the Sangha. That, okay, they, these are the people who said, okay, this really works. We're happy to pass it on because it's a good thing. And so then you take their example and you follow that example. That's how you, you know, can develop. This is why we know about mindfulness. This is why we know about the Buddha. There have been people who have been passing it on because it was good. This is how we find safety for ourselves. This is the letter I think the Buddha would, have, would write to you. So notice where the real dangers are. Notice that the main, main problem, of course, there are dangers outside, but the main problem is in your mind. But the possible s solution is also there in your mind, qualities that you can develop as you give, as, as you give the teachings a good try. And the safety he promises is not just safety from politicians. It's safety f or safety from your unskillful actions. It's also safety from all action. This is, where the, this is where the teachings get pretty radical. There's a part in the mind that is not created, that is not fabricated. And by the only, the only way we're going to find it is learn how to fabricate states of concentration, learn how to put together wisdom in your mind. And that's when you'll be able to see, okay, what lies beyond the fabrication. It's like learning about how to untie knots. We first have to tie the knots. Get really good at tying knots, so when you see another knot, you recognize that this knot has to be taken care of that way, that knot has to be taken care of that way. And that's how you can take care of all the knots. So, 
I've run out of thoughts. So I hope this is helpful. Are there any questions? Yes. Um, how are... I've noticed that the breath is related to sensations in the body. Mm-hmm. So um, it's nice to have the breath to come back to, but there's also a sensation It affects the breath, or mm-hmm. like there's some kind of relationship between mm-hmm. the sensations and breath. It's, there's, there's, there's kind of a sensation that arises, and there's a label the mind places on that sensation. So, this is the thought of anger. Let's go. So, you've got to look for that act of the mind that's identifying. Okay, this sensation corresponds to anger. And ask yourself, does it have to? You can make it. You can make it do that. Yep, it's a habit. That if, hey, if if we all have to just say well, it's a habit, so you got to I got to accept it, we'd never get anywhere. The Buddha is basically saying, "Look, you can change your habits, and this is how you do it. You take them apart." Can I, can I be aware of the sensation of the the habit that I have developed over years of living, and then just see, oh, this is the, the sensation of anger arising. Okay, that's that's just the beginning because you've got to figure out okay when it comes, what are the steps in which I which I put it together? Because it's not inevitable. I mean, because it's habitual, it feels inevitable, but it's not. And you have to say, well, what are the steps? And to do that, it's it's best to get the mind in good concentration, so you can begin to see. Oh, this is when it's beginning. And it, there's there's several arbitrary steps in there. It's become you know, the part of the mind says, "Hey, I like my anger. Here's a chance. Let's go for it." You know. But there, if you have another part of the mind says, "No, I've, I've had enough anger. Let's try to take this apart." Yeah, it would be like a memory. Of the results of anger leads to feelings of anger, and then the results of anger leads to problem You try to remember that these are the drawbacks. And you, but you also have to recognize, well, why do I still like it, even though I know the drawbacks? Years back when I was living in Chiang Mai as a layperson, there was a group of us who really liked Northern Thai food. And every week we would fan out over Chiang Mai, and we knew where the best, you know, the best barbecued chicken was, and the best, all these different Northern Thai dishes. And then we'd all go out, and then we'd get together and have a picnic, and the next day everybody would have diarrhea. <laughs> And then the following week, we'd do it again, you know. <laughs> because we like the taste. So what's the taste of anger that you like? Ask yourself that. Do you feel that, like, sort of the, the people that work on Amazon, is that 
or similar software? Is that right livelihood? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> the point I was trying to make was not so much Amazon as a vice, but it's, it explains the fact that you know, your computer doesn't turn itself on. <laughs> At least it hasn't, they haven't figured that one out yet. Um, you're the one who turns it on. You're the one who clicks on Amazon. You're the one who clicks for this, 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 this. Or sometimes you just go into Amazon and say, what is there out there that I could want? In other words, it's not because we have desire, not only because things out there are sparking the desire, but we want to want something. We want to be angry about something. We want to have lust. You know. That's, that was the point I was trying to make. Now, Amazon as an organization, I mean, I try to avoid that as much as possible. But that's another discussion. <laughs> that short story back there, there's a, I, brought, I brought a couple of Dharma books, but I also brought a book which is not specifically Dharma. I guess I should explain that now. Um, the author was the father of someone I knew in Thailand years back. And I learned recently that he's been he's being um, proposed to get a UNESCO World Cultural Figure Award, and hardly any of his writings have been translated in English. So I decided it'd be good to translate one of his pieces in English. It's, it's a it's a charming story. It's kind of sad, but it's very very funny. But the the best line in there is this: this guy is given this magic magic talisman, and he, and he can ask for anything. And just the, the thought of asking for things he had never thought of wanting before. <laughs> That's my favorite line in the whole story. <laughs> so that's how we go through life. You know, what is out there for me to want? Yes. Regarding dedicating merit, mm -hmm. if I dedicate merit after meditation. If I dedicate merit to, say, my mother, she gets 100% of that merit. What happens if I dedicate, after meditation, the merit to my mother and my father? They both get 100%. Both have yeah, gets 100%, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it's diluted in the, in, in, in the ocean. You know? so, why wouldn't I just, at the end, dedicate merit to everybody, including my hungry ancestors? Dedicate it to all. But then there may be some people, and particularly you say, I want to keep remembering that this person is suffering right now, I want to keep that in mind. And how is that more helpful? It's helpful for you. Yes. <laughs> so I'll go back to equanimity. Mm -hmm. Equanimity has to be something that you do for yourself, with the awareness that you help yourself to make your life more um, generous. Mm -hmm. Is it possible for us to help other people to achieve their community, or has to be, they have to have initiated this? Okay, the fact that you are practicing equanimity means you're in a better position to help other people. I mean, you're, you're in, it's for your sake of your own well-being, but also and if you're in a difficult situation and you can remain calm and collected, you can think more clearly and help other people more appropriately. So both sides benefit. Now, if you tell other people, hey, be equanimous, calm down, 
Sometimes they'll accept it, sometimes they won't. But the fact that you're equanimous is, is helpful both sides. Yes? Um, something has come up <clears throat> around my um, friends around uh, non mm -hmm. And it's the vegetarian, the mm -hmm. vegan. Mm -hmm. um, I have those friends who are meat eaters and they have a calm state of mind about it. Mm -hmm. I have vegan friends who are extremely uh, active and seem to be relatively violent in their activism, which I think causes them to have a mind on fire. And I'm wondering about the balance of that. Is one person more likely to be more wholesome in their actions than another? Okay, well, the Buddha actually ate meat himself. And for the monks, it is, you know, we know if we, as long as we don't know or hear or don't see, hear or suspect that someone killed it for us, it's okay for us to eat. Now, it still means that we, you know, we have a karmic debt to the animal. And it's one of the reasons why we spread goodwill and dedicate our merit of our practice to the animals. Um, right, okay. And in terms of the precepts, the Buddha says, you know, you don't kill on your, you, you don't kill yourself, you don't order other people to kill. Beyond that, that's up to you to see about your state of mind, your, how, how harmless you want to be around, around this issue. And that's optional. But when you start getting militants about, and I, I'm always afraid of militant causes. But I know some perfectly you know, calm and peaceful vegans and vegetarians, and they're perfectly fine. So, I mean, it's, as John Fung said, it's possible to be right but wrong at the same time. So, maybe, okay, it's right. Okay, it's good to be able to you know, eat in a way that's harmless. But if you're going to go out there and start beating people, you know, and they're, they're, you know, they're attacking butcher, butcher shops now in France, which, you know, which is harming other people. They may say, well, they're protecting the animals, but they're harming people's property, which is not quite the right way about going about it. If you want to be, you know, get more vegan people and vegetarian people, find ways of fixing the food that's really good and really nutritious. And invite your friends over for a vegan feast. Uh, thinking about um, what you said about what the Buddha said to Rahula when you're kind of evaluating your actions mm -hmm. before, during, and after, you know, you know. Most people's discernment is only so good. Mm -hmm. So is it one of those, well, as you develop the path, it gets better, just do your best? Or, or it's kind of frustrating because, like, the, the tools that I have is not great. But they will be developed through use. Mm -hmm. You get more sensitive to these things. And, you know, if you're, you've got a good teacher, the teacher will say, <clears throat> have you noticed that you know, there's this back, you know, drawback to what you're doing? That's why we're not doing this all on our own. Yes.
lucidity of mind might just not be something that happens and there's like serious confusion going on. Do you have, like, and let's assume that they're also receiving therapy to help them with that. Do you have any specific advice for practitioners who have that challenge on any way to augment or handle that? One of the best things is just to work on goodwill. It's like, okay, when I'm feeling confused, let me think just goodwill for everybody. I mean, that's, that's a general recommendation for any illness, so that you're not con- you're so concerned about your, the torment that you're going through yourself, either physical or mental. May all beings be happy. I, mean, I don't want to wish anybody any ill. That, that thought in and of itself is strengthening. It helps get you out of the kind of the, the torment of self-criticism that can often also go on with this with some of these, these problems. It's also good if you have some... If you look at what, what, what the individual finds calming to listen to, then you know, get, a t- get a tape or a recording of that and listen to that when you're going through these difficult periods. My father uh, had Parkinson's dementia the last couple of years of his life. We found, found that if he could listen to Brahms, slow movements from Brahms' music, it calmed him down. So at the very least he wasn't agitated. Mm-hmm. I always wondered why it was Brahms and not other composers. We tried other composers and it didn't work. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Attention is the Buddha never talks about bare attention. He talks about you know basically appropriate and inappropriate attention. It's an action that you're doing, so it's not just you're not totally passive. Now there are times when you you, you come up against a problem and you realize I can't figure this one out yet. So I've just, then you say I just got to watch it. So the Buddha, the Buddha does talk about some problems in the mind can get handled just by simply watching them. So there is that, but it. So simply watching, that's a particular kind of fabrication. It's based on the intention. I'm just going to watch this, and I'm not going to pass any judgment quite yet. I just want to keep look at the situation until I, until I have a better, better perspective on it. So there's an element of fabrication that goes into the, into, the, into the just watching. There are other times when okay, just watching something is not going to go away. And you begin to see, okay, this this comes because of that. So let's let's work with that. Where is the allure? Where is the where are the drawbacks? When it comes, what comes along with it? When it goes, what goes away with it? Those are the questions you want to ask, even while you're doing the the bare attention. And then once you begin to see, oh, this comes with this particular sensation. This comes with this particular mental image. Then you work with the sensation. You work with the mental image. So that's, that's how I see the combination between those two, or the way they work together.
didn't mention uh, Ajahn Lee, Ajahn Chah, and I'm going back to the source. Mm-hmm. And with Buddhism, I guess, um, it would seem like maybe if one of the few traditions that places such a strong emphasis on direct experience. And when you have a lot of other, other traditions in the world that have so much um, intellectual indulgence, I guess, uh, where you end up with a lot of different denominations and so forth. With Buddhism, uh, when, when you see that happening, is that kind of due maybe to the subjective nature of some of these uh, higher attainments, even up to Nirvana itself, or is that maybe also due to intellectual indulgence from those without direct experience? I don't, I don't quite, quite follow your question. You have Mahayana, you have Vajrayana, you have Theravada, and so forth. Um, and there's obviously disagreements. Uh, but with Buddhism being so uh, uh, reliant on direct experience in the Buddhist teachings, um, are the disagreements essentially due to the subjective nature of these experiences later, or is it just the people that don't have direct experience? Well, it's. I mean, you can have direct experience, but the question is, what questions do you ask yourself about that experience? And there are many levels of practice where you arrive there and think, this must be it, but it's not. And that's, so, that's, one of the possi- that's one of the problems. And when we think about you know, John Cha, I mean, they, they, there's, there's this myth around a John Cha and a John Mun that they were just, you know, had nothing to do with doctrine at all. It was all just direct experience. But they learned a lot of the doctrine, and they used the, they, they used the tools of the vocabulary to talk about their experience and to analyze their experience. There's something about the, the Theravada tradition that, which I really like, is it really gives you good questions to ask, instead of just saying, okay, kind of clone this state and you'll be okay. He's basically saying, okay, ask this question about your attainment, then ask this question about your attainment, to, ch- to test it. And it's the questions that they ask that I think are, are important. Because I know, I know there are some Buddhist traditions that you get to a particular state and you're not supposed to question it. Which, you know, that sets off alarm bells in my head right there. Yes, you can, if you're not supposed to question it, okay, why not? It should be able to stand up to any question. And then you look in the teachings of John Mahabua, John Lee, they've got the questions to ask. So, so there's a vocabulary, there is a tradition that they're bringing to it. It's not just total, pure, you know, state of nature kind of things. You read some of John, John, John Cha's teachings in Thai, he actually brings in quite a lot of the technical vocabulary. And the same with the John Lee and the same with the John Mun. So it's, I think the question is, to, to what extent are you going to question your attainment? And that's what the difference is, I think. Is the primary, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. is the primary question ultimately, am I still suffering? Is that kind of... Is there still suffering, yeah. You've got to get the eye out of there at some point. <laughs> <laughs> question in the back. <laughs> uh, do you have any advice um, for um, kind of overcoming bad habits that you might have um, during meditation? Um, for instance, uh, 
sometimes I just can't stop focusing on uh, swallowing or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's when you say, how are my hands and feet right now? And to hell with my swallowing. Because, I mean, that, that becomes a distract, distraction. You say, there, there must be something better than just sitting here and focusing on my swallowing. Um, and it's, it's, it'll, be a, it'll be a little battle for a while, but you say, look, I want to get out of this. And that's hands, feet, anything as far away from the swallowing as possible. And see if that helps. Yes. So the, um, the taste of anger that I like mm -hmm. is the relief that I get by releasing the anger. Mm -hmm. So it's a discomfort that's there, and then by expressing that discomfort. Okay, you've got two different things right there. One is to express the feeling. One is to get there with three things: to, to get rid of, release the tension, express your feeling, get my way. Okay, what if your way is the wrong way? You're later going to regret. Oh, I, I got my way, but now I'm regretting it because I wasn't thinking things through properly. As for the release of the tension, you can do that with the way you breathe. You don't have. I mean, for most of us, the question is either we're going to bottle it up and get cancer, or else we're going to, you know, let it out and then it becomes poison in the world. Is there another alternative? And this is what we, why we work with the breath energy. So, is breathing into it? Uh... Breathing into it and thinking of it, dispersing. Dissolving. Isn't that getting the poison into the world in a different way? No. How does it see? It's not poison when you just treat it as a tension in the body. So there's tension in the body, you breathe into it, it kind of like disperses. It's like saying there was a knot in that piece of cloth, and so you undo the knot. Where does the knot go? <laughs> as for getting my way, as I said, watch out for your way. <laughs> yeah, I have a. Um, it's tricky with a with a child, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a seven-year-old. So. Okay. Well, there are ways you cannot. You don't have to be angry, but you can look angry. So they. they <laughs> So the, so the child takes you seriously. <laughs> what, what? <laughs> what was that? You're not a fool anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yelling is a, is a tool. It's a tool. Think of it as a tool. And you've got to yell when you're not angry, because otherwise it gets out of hand. And then try to calm it down and tell the child, I'm serious. You don't want me to yell, but I'm serious, okay? Get the, get the kid to understand, okay, you, you don't, he doesn't have to obey you only when you yell. Can you 
I don't know. I, I was never much of a yeller. <laughs> I prefer the cold cut, you know. <laughs> so. Sometimes when you're desperate, you find space pretty quickly. <laughs> yes? I'm just thinking back when you were listing off the precepts earlier, and you were talking about uh, no intoxicants mm -hmm. sort of adamantly across the board. Mm -hmm. And then when you were mentioning uh, sexual misconduct, it was sort of illicit sex or sexual mm -hmm. So is that implying that within the precepts that um, celibacy is not required for liberation, but the intoxicants are a little bit? Uh, I was just kind of confused in that. Well, it's, it, well, it's interesting that um, for stream entry, I mean, stream enterers can still get married and have kids and everything. So licit sex is okay up to a point. <laughs> <laughs> Non-returners don't do it, okay? <laughs> you can put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> expect that comment at all. <laughs> <laughs> just that the amount of time and energy that goes into, because most of our sensual pleasures, we have to dress them up in order to make it worth it. And sex in particular, I mean, we think of the human body, good Lord, I mean, there's... <laughs> anyone actually go up and get against another human body? This is crazy. You know? <laughs> and so when you learn to look at, okay, why would I want that? And you, and you begin to see, okay, the things that drive you and the drawbacks, and the drawbacks way outweigh the, the benefits. And you say, well, why bother? As long as the mind is engaged in sensuality. And it's interesting, when the Buddha defines sensuality, it's not the sensual pleasure, it's our fascination with thinking about it, our fantasies. And sex is mainly fantasy. Yeah, and are you really attached to the object as much as you are attached to your fantasies? Or the, or the, the feeling 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's so many pleasures in life. They're, they come and they go, and they're gone. But beforehand, you can say, this is going to be really great. Afterwards, you say, wasn't that really great? Then when you learn, learn to look through the way that you've been advertising these things to yourself, you say, this is, this is nothing. It's not worth it. Yes, nirvana. Actually, John is better too. But, <laughs> what is John? Strong concentration. And the breath is the gateway. The breath is the gateway in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You said there are copies of the book "Keeping the Breath in Mind" in the back there. There's it, there's "Keeping the Breath in Mind" method too. Has a whole section on jhana. You can look at that. Yes. Brendan, you spoke earlier about the development of mindfulness and concentration, which I guess you'll be speaking about again tomorrow. Is it possible to develop mindfulness and concentration when we're not in meditation? Uh, about oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you're mindful of what's going into your mind, and you try to keep things focused. And as you go through the day, you just have a sense of, okay, I'm fully inhabiting my body. And if wherever there's a sense of tension in the body, relax that. And just try to keep that intention in mind. And that, that becomes your concentration. And so basically how you should be going th- between one session of formal concentration to the next. Try to maintain, as the Buddha said, it's like a post. Mindfulness of the body, he says, is like having a post, and you've got these six animals on different leashes. And you, if you don't have a post, you tie the leashes together, and then the animals just pull in whichever direction they're going to go. You've got, a, you've got an alligator, you've got a bird, you've got a dog, you've got a hyena, you've got a snake, you've got a monkey. And they're going to pull in different directions. And it always struck me that, well, the alligator's going to drag all the rest of them down to the water. <laughs> and, <then laughs> and that's the end. <laughs> Whereas if you have a post, you tie, the, you tie the, the, the leashes to a post, then they can pull in different directions, but they're not going to go anywhere. And they finally settle down. In the same way, your awareness of your body, the awareness of the breath in the present moment is like a post. And so that your, your senses don't pull you off into all sorts of other directions. So a lot of this is learning how to inhabit your body with a sense of ease all the time. That's how you connect. Mm